Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 335 with Mark Efron. I think you're going to love this chat with Mark because he is breaking down what does science have to say are the critical steps in becoming a high performer at work. What does the real evidence suggest in terms of the linkages between stuff people do and the results in terms of high performance ratings and advancement and promotions, that good stuff. So you'll learn one, the eight steps to high performance, two, the difference between goals and promises and three, how to estimate and achieve your theoretical maximum of effort. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep335. Now here's Mark's story. Mark Efron is the founder and president of the Talent Strategy Group and founder and publisher of Talent Quarterly Magazine. He's a co-author of the book, One Page Talent Management, and has been recognized as one of the top 100 influencers in human resources. So thanks to Mark for sharing some time with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Mark. Mark, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. My pleasure, Pete. Happy to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you as well. And the first thing I need to hear all about is you and Thai boxing. How did this come about and what's the story here? Yeah, Pete, Muay Thai boxing. Um, I fell into this probably no more than about five years ago. Uh, short stories. I've always been a gym rat and was in the gym one day and uh, saw these guys doing boxing training over the corner. Said, hey, that looks like fun. Uh, talked to the trainer. Turned out that he's actually uh, a Muay Thai master. And uh, I had no idea what Muay Thai was. Turns out it is a boxing style that the Thais came up with when the Burmese were trying to invade them hundreds of years ago. And uh, it was actually kind of a, a creative way that they discovered to uh, to repel the invaders. But now it's uh, essentially a form of mixed martial arts and turned out to be a heck of a workout. Um, but also turned out, I found, to be a really good parallel for life uh, and business in that uh, – a very short story. The first three months or so that you you train at this, you're just you're kicking, you're hitting, and it's pretty fun. And like all beginners, you think you're getting pretty good. And then about three months in, your trainer takes a swing at you and hits you, <laughs> and you quickly realize, hey, all that kicking and hitting, that's all theory. When they swing back, that's practice. And uh, it just reminds me of the, the Mike Tyson quote: "Everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face." And it feels like that's a really good metaphor for high performance. It's all theory until you have to go out there and actually compete. But uh, love it. It's a, the best workout I've ever had. That's cool. And so does it also enable you to repel uh, attackers? Have you had a cause to use it under intense circumstances? If I find uh, hordes of rotting uh, Burmese in my office, I will use it uh, as best I can. Okay, you're all set. And so let's talk about your office for a bit. Your company is called the Talent Strategy Group. And what are you about? What do you do there? Sure. Uh, this is a firm I formed uh, eight years ago. When my last book came out, uh, One Page Talent Management. And we help large global companies, the Googles, the Starbucks, the McDonald's of the world, help their uh, their teams and their, their leaders to be higher performers. So we work all around the globe. We do a lot of performance management work and training work and uh, all great stuff. Mm -hmm. Cool, fun. Well, I want to hear about your latest here, your book, Eight Steps to High Performance. What's the big idea here? 
the big idea is helping individuals to understand that the path to high performance is actually pretty well proven. And that there's a lot of noise out there that distracts folks. But if we go back to the core science about performance, there's a pretty clear set of steps that if they follow, anyone can be a higher performer. Okay. Well, could you, in rapid fire format, unveil to us, you know, what are these eight steps? Sure. Uh, First one, step one, set big goals. Just what it sounds like, a few really challenging goals. The most powerful science out there says that bigger goals stretch our performance. Second step, behave to perform. Uh, We all want to behave like good citizens, but there are a few ways of behaving that are actually going to elevate your performance faster than others. Step three is grow yourself faster. It's great to be a high performer, but if you're going to move forward, you need to become better at what you do and better at the things that you want to do going forward. And there are some scientifically proven ways of getting there faster than the techniques that you might normally try. Step four is connect. This is actually the step that I personally have the most challenge with. Connect is forming great relationships inside and outside your company. Again, the science is really clear. People who do that better are going to be higher performers and move farther in their careers. Step five, maximize your fit. Uh, Keep this saying in mind. Companies change faster than people change. Companies change faster than people change. That means that your company is going to evolve very quickly and the needs that that company have from you are going to change over time. And so you're going to need to pay really close attention to where is my company going and what are the different needs it requires for me to be a high performer going forward. Step six, and uh, this is the one where we hear a lot of noise, is fake it. Fake it means that the genuine you, the authentic you, might not always be the you that your company needs to see. And that sometimes you might actually need to fake some behaviors you don't fully feel comfortable with in order to be successful. Step seven, commit your body. Uh, There is great science behind a few things that we can do around sleep primarily, but also we'll talk a bit about exercise to make sure that you are primed for a high performance. And the final step, step eight, avoid distractions. And what we mean by avoid distractions is there is a lot of noise, a lot of fads out there. Uh, Think of them as the get-rich-quick schemes for high performance that uh, sound too good to be true. They are, uh, and we call out in the book some of the most common ones that you should avoid. Okay, well, thank you. Oh, so many of these are so intriguing and thinking about prioritization. So maybe I'll give you the first crack at it. You know, which of these steps do you think provides kind of a extra leveraged or disproportionate bang for your buck or return on the effort you put into trying to take the step? Sure. Uh, it really is step one, set big goals. Now, as fundamental as that may seem, there are a few things that are helpful to know. One is there is incredibly strong science that says things like bigger goals deliver bigger results, meaning we're hardwired to respond to more challenge with more effort. So, Pete, if you say, Mark, jump a foot in the air, I'll give you a dollar. I'm going to try to jump a foot in the air. If you say, Mark, try and jump two feet, I'll give you two dollars. I'm going to try that. If you say three feet, three dollars. I'm going to keep trying to do more as long as the reward seems to equal the challenge. So if you say jump four feet, but you still only get $3, I probably won't do it. Or I'm too physically exhausted to respond to the challenge. 
So bigger goals actually do motivate us to perform at a higher level. So that's step one, but then focus those goals. You can't have 20 big goals. You'll kill yourself, but you certainly can have three. And especially at work, the key thing is to understand what are the few things that really, really matter to my boss, not to me, to my boss. What are the three big things that he or she really wants to see me deliver this year and align your goals with his or her priorities? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I think some bosses would have a hard time limiting themselves to three. <laughs> it's like, I want 15 things from you, Mark. They're all super important. And then some, I'm thinking about our previous guest, Bruce Tolkien, with the crisis of under-management. And I think some might not really know in terms of, well, I mean, we've got to keep things moving and going and operational. And so any pro tips in terms of having those conversations effectively with your boss to really land upon the big three? Sure. Well, let's say your boss goes too high, meaning, hey, uh, you know, Pete, you have 10 things to do. Why are you asking me about three? Uh, Well, boss, I'm going to get all 10 done. Don't you worry about that. But if there were three that you think I should really, really get done to the highest level possible, what should be the three that you think are most important this year? So any type of prioritization, well, reassuring your boss, hey, I got it. I'm going to make sure everything gets done. But your boss very likely has a few things that uh, she or he wants you to ace this year, mainly because it's going to make them look better. And so reassure them that you'll get them all done, but ask them for some prioritization. And if they go too low, meaning they say, well, Pete, show up and do a good job and work hard, then <laughs> ask questions like, hey, I'm absolutely going to do that, uh, Mark. But, um, you know, what are you working on this year? What are the, what are the few big projects that are, that are on your goal list? Um, cool. Are there any things that I'm doing right now that I can align better with the big goals that you have to achieve? Now, this also gets into a bit of step four, which is connecting well with your boss. There's nothing wrong with making your boss look good. And goals are a great way to do that. Boss, what are you working on? Hey, I want to make sure you ace those few things. How can I best help you to do that? So if they go too high, help ask them to help you to prioritize. Uh, If they go too low, uh, maybe start with what's most important to them, given what they're working on. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that's helpful there. And so you talk about making promises in this section of the book. Is there a distinction between a goal and a promise? And how do you think about that? Yeah, and it's easy to dismiss that as kind of a cute word trick. But I do think there's a different emotional component between the two. So I could say, hey, Pete, yeah, I got a goal for this year. I'm going to try and do X. That's much different than saying, Pete, I promise you by the end of 2018, I will achieve this. One sounds a lot more serious. Oh, hey, we try to achieve goals, but how many people like to break their promises? Mm -hmm. So part of it might be a bit of a, a Jedi mind trick, but it really is just kind of increasing the emotional component of what you're saying around those goals. Yeah, I hear you. There's definitely more sort of commitment or intensity, you know, almost anxiety. It's like, oh, crap, what if I don't deliver? Ah, you know, it's kind of spooky when you use the word promises. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want to you don't want to disappoint someone by not delivering on a promise. But goals, we almost think, well, yeah, of course, you make some goals. You don't make some goals. Well, hopefully you you deliver on most of the promises that you make. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And so then your suggestion is that you articulate that verbally or do you write it in the performance management system or a document or review between a boss and direct report? Or how do you recommend these get kind of captured and worked upon? Yeah. And first of all, if your company has a way of doing it, start there. Um, A lot of those ways are bureaucratic and annoying. Um, If your company doesn't have a way of doing it, then write them wherever you're going to see them, write them on the front of your desk, put them in your your phone, wherever it's going to stay in front of you, that there are three big things that I'm trying to get done. So again, you're going to have many, many distractions. You have a hundred things to get done during the year and you're going to need something that helps to reinforce for you. Hey, these are the three big things that I've promised and that, that are likely going to differentiate whether I'm seen as a high performer at work or not. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious then, yeah, when it comes to selecting them, we talked about making the boss look good, aligns to what's most important to them, and then it makes you look great in terms of it distinguishes you in terms of you being perceived as a high performer. Any other pro tips in terms of do's and don'ts for selecting these goals? I guess one of the tricky things with goals or promises here is that often your control is somewhat limited. You know, like you have to rely upon other collaborators internally or consumers, customers, clients responding favorably in a marketplace. So how do you think about that angle of the promises? Sure. Well, I think there's a, there's a fine line between challenges and excuses. Um, customers come and go. Economies get better and worse. People cooperate and don't cooperate. So I think part of it is when you're setting that goal, uh, identify what are the few key things I'm depending on uh, that I depend will, on will happen to allow me to achieve that goal. And it might mean that um, Susie needs to deliver on Project X in order for me to complete that. Okay, cool. Well, then you'd better help Susie get Project X done. Um, it could be just a big assumption. Hey, boss, uh, I'm assuming that uh, that client Y is going to continue buying our product as they always have. If they don't, we'll need to come back and renegotiate that goal. So part of it is just understanding what are the variables that are going to either allow you to, to make that goal or to make that goal challenging. The ones that you can control, put a plan in place to control them. The ones you can't control, then it's fair if they change to go back to your boss and say, um, hey, boss, I was supposed to sell 100 widgets to that company. That company doesn't exist anymore. Let's talk about what my new goal should be. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really, it's a line of saying, yeah, there are lots of bad things that can happen. Probably best to identify those things that you can control in advance and work hard to control them um, and uh, just be aware of the other ones as, as early as you can. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Well, so I'd like to get your take that on behaviors, what are some of the real quick, some of the best and the worst? Sure. Well, I think that um, there's a challenge for a lot of leaders who hear either through books or through their HR group that um, great leadership behaviors are what makes somebody successful. Well, the science is clear. Great leadership behaviors make somebody a great leader. And that's cool. Uh, but there's also really good science that says there's a set of performance driving behaviors that doesn't mean that you act like a jerk, but it means you don't necessarily spend as much time um, kind of engaging with your team. It's all about how do I get higher performance? And each of those styles might be appropriate at different times. 
So if you are with a uh, company owned by a private equity firm, they have extremely high demands for uh, how the your company is going to grow and perform, you might just need to drive high performance. And many people will respond very positively to that. On the other hand, if you're maybe with a more long service organization, has a more gentle culture, you might need to really spend a lot of time in the, the care and feeding of your staff. Either of those are perfectly fine ways of behaving, but each of those is also more appropriate for one situation than another. So the first step would simply be, look at the situation that I'm in. What is the company valuing most from me? Do they value that I get things done the most? Do I do they value that I am a, a great leader, grow my team, support the culture most? Uh, first step is really understanding what does my company need from me? And ideally, your company can tell you, hey, we either have a leadership model or a behavior model uh, that give you some guidance. Challenge with those is they tend to be eight or 10 or 12 things that are all lovely behaviors, but don't give you a lot of focus. So if your company does have one of those models, I really think it's helpful to go to your boss or talk to uh, high performers in your company and say, you know, these are eight or 10, 12 really cool things, but what are the two that really, really matter around here? What am I going to get noticed for if I do or in trouble for if I don't do? So again, focus is going to be a key theme on high performers. That's focus on the big uh, promises, but also focus on the few behaviors that matter most. Mm -hmm. So you're saying then that this really varies organization by organization. And so have you zeroed in on some universal best practices associated with driving performance and results? Well, there are a few things that are going to make you successful in every environment. One is building the quality and performance of your team. Quality meaning, uh, are you increasing the capabilities of the people on your team? Are they more skilled and more capable at the end of the year than they were at the beginning of the year uh, due to the uh, assignments and the experiences and the challenge that you've given them? You can certainly have people deliver great results and learn nothing. Uh, that doesn't add a lot of value to the company. So step one is, are you building the quality of those leaders by giving them big, juicy challenges that are a bit scary, that stretch their skills, that cause them to learn? And so at the end of the year, you have a team that is higher quality uh, than others. So uh, developmental behaviors uh, are going to be ones that are going to be valued everywhere. And then to the theme we're talking about, just classic performance driving behaviors. All the things we talk about in the book applying to yourself, are you applying those to others, especially starting with those big goals? Are you challenging your team members to do more, but in a focused way? So not simply, I need 10% more than last year, but what uh, are the few most important things and how can I stretch you to what we call your maximum theoretical performance? So we introduced this concept in the book. It actually comes from, uh, from weightlifting. Uh, very simple concept. If you go to the gym and you're going to lift some weights, what would be the theoretical maximum amount of weight that you could lift if everything was perfectly aligned, meaning if you had been actively training, if your diet was great, if you felt good that day, the gym was the right temperature, if everything was perfect, what would your theoretical maximum performance be? Now, 
average Joe or Joe goes into a gym, they can lift about 60% of, uh, of theoretical maximum performance. If you're a bit of a gym rat, you're there all the time, you would probably do about 80% of your maximum performance. Science says that Olympic athletes typically do 93, 94% of their theoretical maximum performance. Apply that same concept to work. Hey, most of us show up, we do a really good job, we put in a lot of effort, but what would your theoretical maximum performance be? What would you have to do to perform at that level that is just optimum, that you know that you are giving everything that you have, both performance and behavior standpoint, a good manager is going to work with their team members to say, hey, I know you've got more in you. Let's figure out how we can help you be an even higher performer and have a very clear plan around that. So all the way back to the beginning, more quality, more performance. Well, and I'm curious to know, so both for weightlifting and for professionals doing knowledge work, how does one establish what the theoretical maximum is? Well, I think there are a few ways of doing it. One is if you follow the eight steps that we talked about earlier, you're certainly going to be going in the right direction. Each of those is uh, scientifically proven to make you a higher performer. Uh, but I'm, I'm also a fan of simply saying double your standard. Whatever that standard is for great, what would double that standard look like? Doubling that standard probably takes you from about the 50th percentile to closer to the 100th percentile. And that means looking at things like, hey, I had a great year last year. What would it actually take for me to double that performance? What would it take for me to double what I delivered? What would it take for me to double how quickly or how much I developed? What would it take for me to double the uh, the engagement of my team members? It feels like a very unreasonable standard, but back to the science around setting big goals, it is amazing how much clarity you will get, how much you will stretch your mind around your own performance if you simply ask yourself that fundamental question, what would it take to deliver twice as much as I do today? And the answer can't be work twice as hard because that probably actually won't get you there. Uh, but thinking across between my goals, my behaviors, my network, uh, even my sleep, what else could I do differently that would actually allow me to get to that point? Mm -hmm. And so you're saying that doubling is a pretty good benchmark rule of thumb for that is likely in the ballpark of possible and the maximum theoretical there. Yeah, I think what it's going to do is it's going to, if you say double, you're probably defining your theoretical maximum performance. Is it possible that most of us can double in a year what we did the last year? It's going to be a pretty stiff challenge, but it's going to really clarify your thinking around, well, what would I have to do to move my performance most aggressively uh, in a better direction? Because you're not going to think about incremental solutions like, oh, I can take a class or maybe I'll meet a few more people and network. But really, what would the, the big steps be that are going to have a meaningful difference on your performance? Mm -hmm. And I like it. And I find it, I guess in a way, it's somewhat arbitrary. But, you know, if you think about a, a 5% boost, that's like, I'll just, you know, work an extra 23 minutes or whatever, <laughs> you know, in a day versus I hear people talk about 10xing it, you know, which sounds really cool and exciting, but it just sort of 
often just leaves me frozen. Like, well, I have no idea how I would TEDx, <laughs> TEDx it. But doubling, I don't know, it's working for me because um, I think it sparks ideas for me like, oh, well, I got to stop wasting all this time with this. Well, I got to find a way to automate or outsource or delegate that particular thing, which is, you know, low value, but to free up more time for this other thing. And then suddenly it's like, oh, well, that's not so impossible. You know, that just requires X dollars and a great person. And then, you know, away we go. Yeah, focus drives performance. It is amazing. I think you you really seized on a great point. If I'm going to devil what I do, there's a bunch of stuff I really enjoy doing that I might need to stop doing. And that's part of the trade-off of being a high performer. I have stuff here at work that I love doing. And my team looks at me and says, you really shouldn't be spending your time on that. And, And I guarantee you, I would be a higher performer if I stopped doing some of those things. Can you tell us what are some of those things? Oh, um, I I like to think I have a sense of, of graphic style. And <laughs> I um, annoyingly provide uh, helpful advice to my team about how email should look and graphics should look and deck should look. And they are so appreciative of my constant uh, advice to them. Uh, but they've told me that, you know, maybe I could dial that back just a bit. No, sure. Yeah, I can relate. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, talk to us a little bit about the fakey get notion, presenting a different version of yourself deliberately and what that's all about. Sure. Um, and here's the challenge. People respond very negatively when you say, hey, uh, you need to kind of fake things at work, especially because there's been such a trend over the past five years or so to be our authentic selves and our genuine selves. And that's lovely, but the science says that showing up as your genuine self all the time is probably not going to be the right strategy for high performance because the people around us actually need to see different yous at different times. And if your primary concern is how can the genuine me show up 24-7, you're likely going to miss a lot of opportunities to interact with people in the way that they actually need you to interact with them. Plus, uh, what we find is that if you say, hey, I'm always going to be my authentic self and never change, there are actually opportunities or there are times in our life when we're going to need to show fundamentally different behaviors that we just might not feel comfortable with. And faking those behaviors until either you become comfortable or just faking them to be successful are going to be critical. Um, An example Leaders tend to exist in one of two states, meaning we tend to start off by being what we call an emerging leader. An emerging leader is somebody who needs to really show that they are there. They need to wave their hand around a bit. They need to call attention to their work because if they don't do that, no one's ever going to understand uh, that they're a, a high performer or a potential high performer. And some people are decidedly Um, uncomfortable calling attention to themselves. They believe good work stands for itself. I'll get noticed eventually. Uh, Well, no, good work doesn't automatically get noticed and people don't notice people who quietly do good work. And so if you are uncomfortable doing that, it's important to recognize science is really clear. If you don't call attention to yourself, you're not going to get noticed. Fake it for a while. Doesn't mean, again, you don't need to be an arrogant jerk, not that extent of faking it, but there's nothing wrong with raising your hand in a meeting and offering a suggestion. There's nothing wrong with pointing out to your boss uh, the the high quality work that you're turning in. So you might need to fake that behavior uh, 
The other side of being an emerging leader is being a effective leader. So effective leaders are more established. They are, they have their team, they're a little bit more mature in their career. And effective leaders are going to empower their team. They're going to be good managers, a bit more humble. And if you're someone who loves calling attention to yourself, you might need to fake that. You might need to sit on your hands instead of always raising them in the meeting. You might need to cover your mouth instead of being the first person to respond to every question. So faking things a bit allows you to be the ideal person to show up in each situation, to show up as you're needed, not as who you think you should be. So faking might sound bad because we we think, well, uh, I'm authentic, and that would be being inauthentic. Well, no, what it means is that you're going to behave in a way that is most appropriate to be a high performer in that particular situation. You know, that's interesting. The examples that you're using there for faking it, it really don't feel so, you know, frighteningly inauthentic. I guess adapting to circumstances and challenges as they emerge and, and doing what's necessary in them is just kind of part of the game. And, and it didn't even occur to me that that would be being inauthentic. And I think, you know, hey, I've had to fire someone before and that was very uncomfortable. <laughs> you know, and I don't like that. I like to believe in people and their possibilities and their growth and development. And then, you know, at some point, it's like, oh, this really isn't the right fit. And okay, here we go. So I guess I didn't think of that as violating myself or being inauthentic. It was just more like, hmm, what is required now is not something fun and comfortable for me. And I guess I think other people think about authenticity in terms of like if they want to have purple hair or a huge beard or almost like fashion expression sensibilities. So could you maybe unpack some extra examples of things that we might need to let go of when we're expressing our genuineness or common places where it's necessary to adapt? Sure. Well, and I would say on the the look and how you present yourself, my view is that's a great place to be authentic because I think that shows your personality. Um, but let's take an example of oftentimes I'll, I'll speak with people who will need to get up on stage and do a presentation and they're nervous. And, you know, I'm just not that person who gets up on stage and does that. And I just, I just can't turn on being. And so their genuine you is very afraid of being, uh, kind of a public speaker. And I tell those folks, look, I am a massive introvert, but you know what? No one wants to see up on stage. Someone's staring at their shoes. And so I have to fake it up on stage, and I've got a lot of good people that are in my mind when I'm faking being an extrovert. Um, is it the genuine me? No, it is not the genuine me, but guess what? I fake it pretty well. And so for a lot of folks, it's simply recognizing that um, you don't have to um, restrain or, or constrain what you do because there is some authentic you that sets boundaries around how you can behave. You can say, hey, you know what I'm going to do at that next party? Even though I'm a massive introvert, I'm going to fake extrovert. I'm going to walk into that room saying, I am the biggest extrovert in the world. What would a big extrovert do in this room right now? And either you're going to be at least moderately successful, if not maybe a bit more, and you actually might get a really good round of practice in at being more of an extrovert and find you're building some skills around it. So part of authenticity is stop putting boundaries on your own success by saying, oh, that's just who I am. No, who you are is whoever you feel like being at that moment. Learn how to fake it. It's amazing how much progress you can make. 
Yeah, I like that a lot in terms of rejecting the constraint of that's just not who I am and being able to adapt there. And I liked the instance of, of you imagining what being an extrovert is like. And we had uh, uh, Srini Pillay talk about what he called psychological Halloweenism, <laughs> which is quite a turn of a phrase, which is just that. Like, hey, I'm going to always like put on a costume. I'm going to be this person and see how that goes because it would be very helpful to be this person in this context. And part of it is just our fear of risk, our fear of embarrassment. But Again, most of us really overestimate how much people pay attention to us. We write about that in, in the book. Um, most of us think that everyone is always looking at us and always judging us. And uh, actually, we're noticed far less than we think. So the odds that if we go to a party and we have one awkward conversation with one person, that that's somehow going to spread like wildfire through our social community, probably not the case. You can probably take a risk. And the science is also very uh, conclusive that people are pretty tolerant of us failing in social situations in ways that others have failed in social situations. So people essentially empathize. Yeah, it's tough to walk up to somebody new and have a um, a flawless and fluent conversation. So if that person isn't doing that perfectly with me, I'm not going to think, what an idiot. I'm going to think, hey, they're kind of getting used to being a bit more of an extrovert. Mm -hmm. So people are actually largely forgiving in those situations. Okay, cool. Well, now I save the most controversial for last. I want to get your take on your final step there was avoiding the distractions of what you call unproven fads. And in that category, you put grit, power poses, emotional intelligence, and strengths. Now, a lot of people love this stuff. What's your take on this overall? Well, here's the challenge. There are, and we outlined in the book, there are really clear, scientifically proven steps that will make you a higher performer. And the challenge is that as consumers of information, which I'm sure the, the folks on the podcast uh, are, you get information thrown at you every day that says you can be a higher performer if only you do this. And because most folks aren't industrial organizational psychologists, they probably aren't sorting those marketing claims through a, a very skeptical lens. And so something that sounds pretty easy and pretty straightforward, they may be likely to do. And the challenge is some of those things will kind of do no harm, but most of them are going to really waste your time and distract you from doing the things that actually will drive higher performance. Uh, so some of my favorites are focusing on your strengths. Don't focus on your strengths. And here's the challenge. Gallup has sold millions and millions of books. They have sold, I think, 18 million strength finders assessments. Focusing on your strengths is a great way to continue to be good at things that you're already good at. So if you say, hey, I am in a, I'm in my job. I just want to be really, really good at this job. I don't want a different job. I don't want to move up. In that case, cool, focus on your strengths. You're going to be great. But the challenge is that the strengths that we need over time will change in our career. So if all you do is focus on today's strengths, you are never going to have the strengths necessary for the next job. And there's really great science that says things like, we don't have as many strengths as we think we do. So if you define strengths as being in the top 10% of something, actually most of us don't have that many strengths. And a lot of science that says the strengths that we do have don't necessarily align with what our company needs. So something like focus on your strengths 
sounds really easy. Well, yeah, why wouldn't I do that? I'm good at some stuff, and the stuff I'm not good at, it's really annoying to work on. So, wow, it feels like there's a really easy path to success. I'll just focus on my strengths. Unfortunately, the science is clear that the people, people who advance most quickly in organizations are the one who actually trim the negative tails. Here are the things that are actually holding me back. My strengths will take care of themselves. Um, it's the things that I don't do well that are going to drag down my career. So the challenge is that we have things like that that sound really attractive, that are um, presented in a compelling way, and there's a best-selling book but there's just no science that says that says that it's works. And there's lots of science that says that it probably won't work as well as other techniques. You know, that's interesting when it comes to the strength stuff, it's kind of reminds me of, you know, maybe any number of sort of health and fitness claims in terms of, you know, you can broadly declare something as good or bad, but really I think there's more sort of nuance to it. So you looked at the strengths approach in terms of trying to find how that compares to or correlates to rapidly accelerating, climbing, being promoted and rocky rolling an organization. You say, you know, that the data just aren't there to support the strengths. However, Gallup will say, I've got it up here. People who use their strengths every day are three times more likely to report having an excellent quality of life six times more likely to be engaged at work, 8% more productive, and 15% less likely to quit their jobs. None of those results are climbing rapidly into bigger realms of responsibility. 8% more productive is nice, but that's intriguing. So as I'm kind of putting together what you're saying with what they're saying, and it seems like strengths have some value, but it ain't necessarily getting you to the top of the pyramid quicker. Absolutely. You, I guarantee you and completely agree with Gallup that if you focus on your strengths, you will be happier at work. Absolutely. If your goal is to be happy at work, focus on your strengths. Great solution. If you want to be a high performer at work, then it's probably not the right way to go. You'll probably want to focus on big goals, changing your behaviors, uh, and the other eight steps that we outlined. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Thank you. Anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of our favorite things? I think we're on a roll. Let's keep going. Okay, cool. Well, tell me about a favorite quote, something that inspires you. Let me go high and let me go low. So I'll give you a two. One, um, we'll start with Wolfgang Goethe, the German philosopher. He had a, a quote, doubt grows with knowledge. Doubt grows with knowledge. I think that we should all become more skeptical the more we know about something, because we'll probably find that a few things in whatever area are true. And to what we were just talking about, when things come along that sound too good to be true, they probably are. So the, the high-end quote would be, uh, doubt grows with knowledge, Wolfgang Goethe. Um, the low-end quote would be from the famous philosopher Dwayne The Rock Johnson, mm -hmm. uh, who said, the wolf is always at the door. And I think that is a high performer's mindset. The wolf is always at the door. Uh, you have to have this mindset that everything could hit the skids tomorrow. So what am I going to do today to make sure that I'm extremely well prepared for success? All right. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? Not to bore the listeners too much, but I'm a big fan of setting big goals. And there's great research out there, classic stuff by uh, two really brilliant professors, Gary Latham and Ed Locke, about how goals drive performance we talked about earlier. So just really kind of rock solid science, not light reading, but rock solid science. Mm -hmm. And how about a favorite book? 
Marshall Goldsmith, many of your listeners uh, probably know them. You might have even had them on a podcast. What got you here won't get you there. Uh, bestseller, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Just a great book to help all of us understand that we're going to need to evolve and change through life. And that the moment we rest on our laurels, we're dead. And what Marshall does wonderfully is just kind of pick apart all of our wonderful excuses for why we behave how we behave uh, and really convince us that it's probably smart to let go of those excuses and figure out uh, a more successful way to behave across your life. All right. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? You know, I, I actually had trouble thinking of this. One, I'm a big fan of all my, my hardware and software, but I probably use, and this is not a, a plug, the, uh, the Delta Airlines app. Uh, more than anything else, I'm on the road 70% of my time, and uh, and that app is open almost every single day. So uh, they do a good job for me, and uh, that's probably my favorite tool. All right. And how about a favorite habit? I found out many years ago that working Sundays is very productive for me. Um, it, it started off because I was in business school and doing worse than 98% of people, and realized I needed to put in some extra effort. And so started hanging out in the library from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. on Sundays and realized you can get a lot done when nobody else is around. And since that time, I've worked not every, but three quarters of Sundays in the year. Uh, One, because it's really quiet and my brain needs that to get stuff done. But also, if I'm working six hours a week more than other folks, that's probably going to add up over time into something good. Mm Mm-hmm. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with listeners? Probably two things. In fact, I was looking at uh, on the Kindle copy of the book, things that have been underlined the most, and and two things seem to stand out. One was just the definition of a high performer, because it's probably never been put out there before. I define that as a high performer is somebody whose performance and behaviors are sustained at the 75th percentile over time against your peers, meaning you are always better than 75% of other smart people doing the exact same thing that you do. Uh, That's one. The other is just this concept we talked about earlier of theoretical maximum performance. How good could you be if everything was working in perfect concert? Mm -hmm. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? I would send them to uh, our website, they could start with the eight steps. That's the number eight steps.com. It talks all about the book, or they want to learn more about our organization, talentstrategygroup.com. Tons of articles, videos, lots of other cool resources. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I would go back to what we talked about earlier. Just think about what would it take to double your own standard for great performance? I know a lot of your folks listening right now think, hey, I'm, I'm a pretty good performer. I'm sure that's true. What would it take to be twice as good as you are now? I guarantee you that will give you focus and motivation to do much more than you do today. Awesome. Well, Mark, thanks so much for taking this time. It's been a lot of fun. I wish you all the best and much success and high performance as you do what you do. Thanks, Pete. I enjoyed the conversation. I really, really, really dug Mark's point about the three promises. And from that perspective of kind of where there's a little bit of spookiness when it comes to prioritization or like it's 
abandoning some other things and we don't want to do it. I like that reframe in terms of, okay, yeah, I'm going to get it all done. But if there were only three things that you'd want me to really, really, really nail, what would those be? The do less than obsess. And so I took that to heart and I came up with four, but one of them is like straddling sort of the personal life. And I came up with four of my own business promises. And then I realized that really that kind of breaks down into kind of multiple initiatives or what I call missions. And then within those even sort of subparts like projects or actions or tasks. So in a way, I've got kind of three layers here, the promise of which there's just four, and then the mission of which there's several per promise, and then the project of which there's several per mission. So then I've made what turned out to become an amazing spreadsheet. We've got about 49 projects and they're all linked in a nice sequential means to the mission, to the promise. And then I think about sort of the ideal month by which I will tackle that, the estimated hours to do it, what percentage of done it is. I did something similar to this for my wedding planning with my wife on Google Sheets, a column for the next action, a note, the date it's accomplished, super dorky green conditional formatting for when I hit 100% for a particular project of which I've done one project, get hardcore internet reliability, which connects to mission, boost audio quality, which connects to business promise, gratuitously delight user. That's you, your user. Hope you're gratuitously delighted by the enhanced audio quality and other things that we got coming down the pipeline here. So anyway, I got that and then I got a separate sheet which sort of conveys, okay, hey, how many days have elapsed since you started versus when is this all due? And then what proportion of the work did you have done? And thusly, what is the pacing, the proportion of elapsed days versus the proportion of achieved? So anyway, I'm dorking out so hard on this, but it all flows from that notion of, man, what really, 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 really matters in terms of the top things I will promise to deliver over the course of the year. And then it gets me fired up in terms of focusing in and in terms of seeing how my individual activities of a day are connecting to the mission, to the promise, to the overall performance number achievement and keep me on track. So really dug that, took that and ran with it. Thank you, Mark. When it comes to business promises, if anyone cares, email me and I can maybe clean up the spreadsheet or post it. But right now it's rough. It only makes sense to my brain. But that's the scoop. Anyway, you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced. It's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep335. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push the subscribe button. If you do so, you'll catch our next guest. It's Jacqueline Carter. She's talking about the mind of a leader and the mental principles that make the world of difference in terms of being inspirational and helpful and getting cool leadership results. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 